Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. The June 23rd primary was the first in New York to allow all voters the option of casting their ballots by mail. Under an executive order by Governor Andrew Cuomo, registered voters could cite the COVID-19 pandemic as a reason for filling out an absentee ballot. The New York State Legislature held a hearing this week on the June primary elections to find out what went right and what went wrong. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. 50 to 60 percent of voters took advantage of voting by mail. That's 10 to 12 times more than in previous elections. And boards of elections had to scale up their systems quickly. Senate Elections Committee Chair Zelnor Myrie says while the process went well for most voters, there were some problems. Some did not receive their absentee ballots in time, or they were not able to be properly postmarked by the deadline. In some races, it was weeks before all ballots were counted and the results were known. Too many New Yorkers saw their democracy fail them during this pandemic. The State Board of Elections is governed jointly by Democratic and Republican appointees. Commissioner Peter Kaczynski, a Republican, testified that other states that transitioned to mail-in voting had years to ease into the process. He warns of a tremendous burden to the system in November when millions more voters are expected to cast their ballots and many more might do so by mail. It means that the post office will be our partner in administering elections. A significant portion of our elections will be administered by an entity over which the Board of Elections have no control. President Trump's appointee as Postmaster General has slowed down deliveries by eliminating overtime and urging carriers to hold mail until the next day if they're running late. Democrats have accused the White House of sabotaging the mail delivery system before the fall elections, something they deny. Kaczynski says boards of elections will need more money to handle the expected increased volume of mail-in ballots. He says the $20 million in supplemental funding from the federal government and $4 million from the state have largely already been spent. Governor Cuomo has not yet extended the executive order to allow COVID as a reason for absentee balloting in November. A coalition of government reform groups are urging lawmakers to make more changes before the fall elections. The Senate and Assembly in June approved several measures. Those include giving voters the opportunity to fix mistakes in their absentee ballots before Election Day. Another measure allows boards of elections to start counting the ballots up to 30 days before in-person voting, instead of waiting until after the polls close on Election Day. The bills have been sent to Cuomo for his approval. Christiana Duran, the former Speaker of the Colorado House, who's now a voting rights advocate, says New York should set up ballot drop boxes used in her state and several others to ease the burden on the Postal Service. Drop boxes are safe and secure um, for voters to drop off their mail and, and ballot um, at whatever time that they would like to. It's very convenient for them. Um, you know, in the state of Colorado, we have them in a variety of different communities, also making sure that they're in communities um, it, where there are communities of color or traditionally disenfranchised um, communities to make sure that that, that access is, is available. 
A bill to create the ballot drop boxes is sponsored in the Senate by Senator Brad Hoylman, and a spokesman for Senate leader Andrea Stork-Cousins says it's being seriously considered. State Board of Elections Commissioner Douglas Kellner, a Democrat, says there already exists a form of drop box that voters can use. Voters can deliver their absentee ballots to any early voting site or to any election day poll site uh, as an alternative to using the mail. The Board of Elections Commissioners say there will still be the same number of polling places open on election day as in past years if voters want to vote in person, and they say New York's early voting option for several days before November 3rd is underutilized and could perhaps provide a safer, less crowded alternative to voting on election day. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer, Alan Chartalk. Alan? This week, in your conversation with Senator Liz Kruger, a Democrat, head of the Finance Committee in the state Senate, she talked about the primaries and absentee ballot voting. She noted that in New York City, 75,000 paper ballots never got to people's homes and 20 to 25 percent were ruled not legally able to be opened by a judge. The issue is that the legislature has bills to reform New York's voting, particularly with absentee ballots, and they're eventually looking to remove any need for an excuse to vote by mail. David, these legislative changes, which she outlined very specifically, are coming up now to the governor's office. The legislature has passed it, Democrats in both houses. It's very important that the governor signs it, I suppose, if you're going to really make reform. So a lot of eyes are going to be on Cuomo, and we'll see. Alan, the conversation went further with Senator Kruger, and it had to do with the finances of New York State. Everyone acknowledges the state is broke. She even said she thought, believe it or not, that the Cuomo administration had overspent some money, especially when it came to its economic development programs, particularly public-private partnerships that seem to have failed in many spots in the state. But one of the things that keeps coming up is, even despite the fact that we may get that federal money, it may not be enough going $30 billion in debt in two years. And what? A millionaire, billionaire tax? She supports it. She does. Uh, A lot of Democrats support it, which is tax the very, very, very rich. Somehow that ends up being, well, maybe tax people who have less than being very, very, very rich. Nevertheless, when you're 30 billion in the hole, you have to decide what you're going to do to make that money up. Now, Cuomo wisely and politically has always refused to consider any alternatives to the feds giving the money to the states and localities to dig their way out of this. He's smart to do that because if you start saying, okay, we can do it, but we'll have to do this and this, uh, somebody will come along and say, okay, do that. So he doesn't want to do it. He hasn't done it. But I am sure there's some secret planning going on. For example, I know that everybody's been cut 20%. They may be getting their money, but they're holding some of it back at the state level. And as a result of that, you better believe that we're going to be uh, in bad shape 
if in fact the money does not come through from the feds. So for example, education, which has traditionally in New York State always been given at least a small raise each year to help with inflation and teacher salaries and contracts going up, that is not going to happen this year. And when you have a class already chock full with 30 students at a time of COVID, and it may end up being because you're going to have to fire teachers and do the rest, 50 students in a class, you really have created great suffering in the educational system. And that ain't all, because there's every other aspect of government that they do, whether it's social welfare or anything else, is going to be affected by this. Look, everybody, can't be distracted. You have to know what the governor's trying to do in terms of making the feds pay. But on the other hand, you better get ready because this could not be pretty. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartong. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino. More than 5 million Americans have lost their employer-sponsored health plans during the pandemic and have not secured alternate health insurance. That's according to a study by nonprofit consumer health care advocacy group Families USA. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas with more. The United States has lagged behind other nations in controlling COVID-19, and it's having an effect on residents beyond the virus itself. Compared to residents of nine other high-income countries, people in the United States are experiencing greater mental health and economic challenges from COVID-19, and they are less happy with their national leaders, according to a new report from the Commonwealth Fund. Commonwealth's Reginald Williams notes three major takeaways from the national survey. Compared to other countries, the U.S. performs less well. For mental health, one-third of U.S. adults report experiencing mental health concerns, a significantly higher proportion than in other countries. Two, financially, over 30% of Americans face negative economic impacts due to the pandemic, significantly more than in the comparison countries. And three, with respect to national leadership, 30% of U.S. adults said the president has done a good or very good job of handling the pandemic. The study was conducted from March to May using responses from 8,259 adults in 10 countries, including Canada, the U.K., and the U.S. Williams says Americans are more likely than people in other countries to report mental health concerns. 33% of people in the United States report experiencing stress, anxiety, and great sadness that was difficult to cope with alone since the outbreak started. We found that less than a third of people in the U.S. who wanted to get care were able to get mental health care onto the financial consequences. At 30%, a significantly higher percentage than in any other countries, U.S. adults report being unable to pay for basic necessities like food and rent, using up most of their personal savings, or borrowing money or taking out a loan. Williams notes findings show the U.S. could do more to meet people's mental health care needs alongside efforts to address economic concerns. Commonwealth Fund Senior Vice President for Policy and Research Eric Schneider says mental health and economic challenges Americans are facing can be addressed by social support programs. 
and especially in the they're important in the midst of a pandemic with a sudden once in a century economic crisis. The first is paid sick leave. Without paid sick leave, people struck by COVID-19 and the larger group of people who need to quarantine to keep their coworkers and families safe are faced with an impossible decision, whether to put their family at risk for COVID-19 by continuing to work in order to pay for food, rent, and utilities, or whether to stay home from work at the risk of losing a job and putting the family at financial risk. Schneider says universal paid sick leave, extended unemployment insurance, and increased funding for child care and education programs would go a long way in helping people get through the pandemic. New York State Assemblywoman Pat Fahey, a Democrat from the Capital Region's 109th District, says reopening gyms and fitness centers would benefit physical and mental health. We are seeing very troubling trends of weight gain as a result of the coronavirus, uh, as a result of the shutdowns, as well as uh, problems with increased depression, anxiety. Uh, we're even seeing um, troubling trends with uh, domestic violence and, uh, and, and more. Um, mental health uh, is a, a direct benefit of physical health. And I believe we need to look at this in a more holistic fashion. During a Thursday press call, Governor Andrew Cuomo told reporters, now is not the time to reopen gyms. Fahey believes fitness facilities can be safely opened and pose no more danger than going to a supermarket or big box store. Um, uh, urging that this be reevaluated and re-looked at. They are uh, meeting the same protocols that uh, shopping malls and big box stores are meeting with ventilation systems. Uh, so we think that they are addressing a whole host of safety concerns. And again, we have flat, more than flattened the curve here. It is something that can be closely monitored. Fahey adds gyms typically require members to check in which would expedite contact tracing if that became necessary. There's a link to the Commonwealth Survey at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. Record numbers of visitors at hiking and waterfall destinations in the Catskills and sections of the Adirondacks have prompted the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation Commissioner to remind the public about respecting nature. Unprepared hikers and trash left behind are a few of the issues DEC hopes to remedy as the Legislative Gazette's Allison Dunn reports. DEC Commissioner Basil Sago says most visitors to the state's wild places know what they're getting into and are prepared. There's a small percentage of individuals really across the state, really, you know, we see that primarily in the Adirondacks and Catskills, where, um, you know, people are not uh, playing smart. They're not getting outside the right way. Um, you know, in particular, uh, we've seen people you know, traipse into the high peaks unprepared, um, High Peaks Wilderness is a is a very wild and dangerous place. This is not uh, to be trifled with. You need to plan ahead. You need to uh, wear uh, the right clothing. You need to pack for the worst eventuality, um, and you need to leave a plan with with uh, with people outside your your hiking group. Recent DEC forest ranger actions include searching for lost hikers, some who had no food or water, and rescuing those who were injured at watering holes or on trails. Uh, hiking in uh, flip-flops, I've seen it myself this summer, is totally unacceptable. Um, you know, leaving at the wrong time or, or challenging yourself on a trail you shouldn't be on costs uh, everyone. It's, it's dangerous to the hiker 
and it and it's a, a real uh, a real tax on on the state's resources when we have to perform these very difficult rescues. Trash left behind has been a problem this summer in the Catskills. In July, Greene County residents near Catterskill Clove said the spot had become overrun with visitors and lots of garbage, from lawn bags full to diapers to grills. And now the Greene County Tourism Director is urging visitors to the northern Catskills to avoid Catterskill Falls and Fawns Leap Falls, both on Route 23A in Haynes Falls, and go elsewhere in the region. Both sites have seen record crowds, unsafe driving conditions nearby, and illegal parking. The town of Hunter has implemented parking regulations and will tow illegally parked vehicles to the nearby Town Hall impound lot. The main parking lot to Catterskill Falls is closed, so many visitors are parking along Route 23A, clogging the narrow road and causing unsafe driving conditions. Again, Sagos. You know, we see uh, this year in particular, for some reason, an enormous amount of trash being left at, uh, at trailheads. And it's really a small percentage of people that, that do this, but it's making life really difficult for those of us who want to see the outdoors treated with respect and, and treat each other with respect, frankly. Um, so we're asking people to please abide by the leave no trace principles. In other words, take out what you take in. He says the idea of playing local is important. We've launched a, uh, a recreate local campaign this summer, encouraging people to find nature in their backyards, in, in their local environment, in their county, not driving long distances, whether it's from New York City all the way up to the Adirondacks or uh, to Western New York, um, you know, please, please play local. It's important for um, our, our, uh, uh, our flattening of the curve, of the coronavirus curve. It's important for uh, uh, our, our individual relationships with one another. There's instances where it's hard to socially distance on trails. It's hard to socially distance at various locations around the state. So uh, really just using common sense. This is a plea for, for people to use common sense when they go in the outdoors. We're seeing record Usership, which is great in some ways, but also brings with it some some important costs that we need to consider. Sagos also urges visitors to respect DEC workers and volunteers at the sites. Meantime, at the end of July, Governor Andrew Cuomo pulled the $3 billion Restore Mother Nature Bond Act from the November ballot due to the impact the coronavirus response has had on the state's finances. The cancellation of the of the Bond Act this year, uh, you know, I... I I think there's probably no one who's taken it more personally than the governor and myself, uh, honestly. And um, and yet it's an important decision that was made to protect the state's financial picture for, for the years to come. He hopes the Bond Act can return to the ballot in 2021. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Allison Dunn. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The New York State Department of Environmental Conservation confirmed this week that an invasive beetle that kills ash trees has been found in the southern Adirondacks for the first time. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley with more. So as the emerald ash borer bores along that living portion of the inner bark of, of a uh, uh, ash tree, it eventually, over time, will girdle the ash tree, and that's what really kills the ash tree. 
Justin Perry, Chief of the Bureau of Invasive Species and Ecosystem Health with the New York State DEC, says the emerald ash borer was first discovered in western New York State in 2009. Although not unexpected, the discovery of the emerald ash borer at the Warren County Canoe Launch on the Scroon River is the first time the bug has been found in the Adirondacks. We are still investigating the extent of the infestation. One of the things about the infestation was it was initially found because of what we call blonding of the ash trees. That's where the woodpeckers go after the ash borer as it emerges from the tree, uh, and it actually knocks the bark off of the side of the tree, so it gives the tree a blonde appearance. And that's usually indicative of the ash borer being present within those trees for a number of years. The Adirondack Park Invasive Plant Program, or APIP, is the umbrella management program for all invasive species impacting the Adirondack region. Manager Tamara Van Ryn says the next step is surveying trees in the area. You can see there are some ash trees around there that are stressed. Those have not been tested to determine if they have the larvae in them. And so the next step is that the DEC and the Adirondack Park Invasive Plant Program will be going out and doing a survey to figure out how extensive it is. But usually with emerald ash borer, by the time you're seeing the damage, it's not one tree that's infected. This is probably more than one tree and probably affecting a region around that. How big a region, we don't know yet. The DEC says about 7% of all trees in the state are ash, with a lesser percentage in the Adirondacks. Perry says that's because the Adirondacks are an older forest, and ash tend to get pushed out by the more prevalent shade-tolerant trees. We've known that for some time in the Adirondacks that there is not a huge component of ash. Therefore, it is not surprising for us to see that The Adirondack region is one of the last areas to be invaded by the emerald ash borer. Van Rijn said APIP had hoped to be able to keep the emerald ash borer at bay from the Adirondacks. There may not be a high percentage of ash trees, but in the sites where they grow, they can be quite prevalent. They tend to be in our lower elevation areas or along our river corridors. So for Those sites that do have ash, the emerald ash borer does have the potential to basically decimate the ash trees in those locations. APIP's Van Ryn says the emerald ash borer doesn't tend to migrate very far on its own. They really like to be aided by humans. So the way they move most commonly is in firewood. And so the Don't Move Firewood campaign is still critically important, and especially now that we see that infestation in Warren County. I mean, the last thing that we want to have happen is someone who's along the Scroon River who gets some firewood locally there and brings that firewood someplace else and brings emerald ash borer with them. The DEC says adult emerald ash borer beetles are between 3-8 to 5-8 inches long with metallic green wing covers and a coppery red or purple abdomen. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. Female veterans in New York State without a permanent place to live have strikingly few options. And with the COVID-19 pandemic stretching on, they face more challenges than ever. Here's more now with the Legislative Gazette's Jackie Orchard. 
The Veterans and Community Housing Coalition, or VCHC, runs the Guardian House in Boston Spa. It's a halfway house of sorts for female veterans who face homelessness and, often, are coping with addiction and past trauma. It is the only house of its kind in the state, and one of just seven in the country funded by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Cheryl Hage Perez, executive director of VCHC, says it's fundamental to create an all-female safe space for the veterans. Since the house opened, we've served maybe 70 women. 80% of them have been victims of military sexual trauma and are dealing with addiction, are dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, sleep disorders, which often leads, which always leads, to a homeless situation. Hage Perez says the first step in healing is always stable housing, because if you don't know if you'll have a safe place to sleep that night, it's hard to focus on anything else. So they set up housing first, then address other needs. Mental health counseling, addiction counseling, rehab, detox, uh, physical illness. Hage Perez says most of the female veterans at the Guardian House stay for about two years, or until they're ready to live on their own, like Janet Harrington. Harrington is an active-duty Air Force veteran who went through the program and now lives on her own. She says the Guardian House helped her to overcome her sexual trauma. While in the military, I went in thinking that they were going to show me responsibility, accountability, and all that, but when I, when I reported that I got raped, um, they started putting me on a guilt trip. Uh, what about them, their families? What about the men, their men's career? What's your career? So they basically sidelined me into staying shut. Harrington says she suppressed it for as long as she could. When I came out, I didn't know how to deal with the trauma and the rapes and the stress that I was under because they kept sending me to Saudi Arabia that I picked up drugs and alcohol. Harrington has been sober for almost five years now. She credits that to the Guardian House, which gave her rules and a routine. No drinking, no drugs allowed at, at all. There's a, there's a schedule, like a time you have to be home. I mean, nobody should be out in the street at 11 o'clock at night anyway. If you could afford to go to a bar, you don't need to be here. <laughs> H. Perez says the Guardian House is partially funded by the VA, partially by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and partially by other state agencies. The rest comes from donations and fundraising, like the annual Veterans Ball, which H. Perez says usually has over 400 guests and donors, but is off this year due to COVID-19. So they're getting creative. On Veterans Day in November, the Veteran and Community Housing Coalition is holding a live feed from Cafe Lena as a fundraiser. We plan to have video clips of some of the veterans that we served and where they were, how they got there, and where they are now. H. Perez says they will honor veterans from the community, World War II vets, and a fallen hero. In the meantime, Harrington has some advice for any female veterans who are in danger of becoming homeless or struggling with addiction or past trauma, but are nervous about contacting the Guardian House. Run there. Give yourself time to heal like I did. And now today I could actually enjoy life. There's more information about VCHC and the Guardian House at WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Jackie Orchard.
And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. Copies are available. Call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2033. Or just listen or podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.